Amen. 1 Peter chapter 5 is our passage. Uh, it's been a while since I preached here at Emmanuel. I hope I'm well prepared. Been two Wednesday nights and two Sunday mornings. The last two Wednesday nights, we had Shane Wagner preach, and then we had Corey preach. The last two Sunday mornings, we had Corey preach, and then we had Jake preach. So hopefully this is like riding a bike and we just jump right back on and press on in First Peter. Uh, I was impressed with Jake's outline Sunday. We did not compare notes, but we had the same basic summary of the book of First Peter. And so I'll steal Jake's material and throw a few things at you just by way of introduction this evening. The Apostle Peter is the author of First Peter and Second Peter. We read in 1 Peter that he was in Babylon when he wrote this book. Babylon is code word for Rome. That's something you find in the book of Revelation. Those of you who have been studying the book of Revelation with us may have come across that. When Peter says, she who is in Babylon, he's talking about Rome. He's writing this book somewhere around A.D. 62-63, which means Nero is the emperor in Rome. And he's writing to a group of believers who live in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I'm certain that you all can visualize exactly where those places are at, but maybe if you're rusty on your geography, I'll show you a very similar to, uh, map to what Jake shared with us on Sunday. Uh, all of those different colored areas are Roman provinces in the first century. And there's a yellow circle over uh, to the left middle, that's Rome, right there in the middle of the boot of what we call Italy. And then there's a yellow circle over to the right, that's what we call Turkey. It was divided into a number of different Roman provinces. Uh, and if you zoom in on a map of this, you can see Asia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Galatia and Pontus, all those regions there. I just want to make one point as you think about who wrote this letter, where he was, who he wrote it to, and the timing of all of it. Jake mentioned this Sunday, and I think it's very, very important. We love to make fun of Peter. We read the Gospels, and he stumbles over himself, and he says foolish things, and he just comes off sort of like a, a comic relief character, and he makes us feel better about ourselves. First Peter and Second Peter are written some 30 years later. It's not the same man that you read about in the Gospels. It is the same man. It's Peter, the apostle. But he's not the same person. And I certainly hope that that's true of us as we look back on ourselves after 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. I hope you look back and that you have grown so much in your walk with the Lord that you say, I don't even recognize that person anymore. That's true of Peter. The guy who wrote these letters is not the brash, impulsive, cocky, arrogant, mouthy, always putting his foot in his mouth Peter. He's an older, more compassionate more kind, slow to speak, slow to become angry, seasoned, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. So I just want to throw that out there for your consideration. 
Peter is writing to believers who live in this area, and he calls them at the beginning of 1 Peter, elect exiles. Elect exiles. And he acknowledges the fact that these Christians, these elect exiles, have been saved by the sovereign work of the triune God. And there's a whole series of sermons wrapped up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, where he talks about these elect exiles, and he says that they've been saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for, not by obedience, but for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. It's the Father and the Son and the Spirit all at work to sovereignly bring about the salvation of this group of people, this group of Christians that Peter calls elect exiles. Now, in this short letter, Peter focuses on two things. And the focus of 1 Peter is really the same as the focus of 2 Peter. Two things that are at the forefront. Number one, the glory of salvation. 1 Peter and 2 Peter have some of the most amazing statements and descriptions of salvation that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. So he talks about the glory of salvation. He also talks about the certainty of suffering. The certainty of suffering. Now, the glory of salvation, that sounds nice, right? We like that stuff. Let's talk about what God has done to save us. Let's sing about what God has done to save us. Those are the things we write songs about. Those are the things we, we are inspired by and we're moved by and we get uh, thrilled by. Peter also talks about, in these two letters, the certainty of suffering. Not the possibility. The absolute certainty of suffering for the people of God. And so we're going to talk about that tonight as we look at 1 Peter chapter 5. The big idea is very simple. The God of grace will save His people through suffering. Not from suffering. He does not promise to save us from suffering. He promises to save us through suffering. And He promises to save us for His glory. He's a God of grace. He saves us through our suffering. And He does it for His glory. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll read verse 6 to verse 11. Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself 
restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, tonight we come to the Scriptures. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1 that all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to people like us. Lord, as we listen to the words of Peter, words that your Spirit inspired Peter to write, we understand that we're not only listening to the Apostle Peter, we're ultimately listening to you. We pray that your Spirit, who inspired these words, would drive them home to our hearts, that your Word would do its work and accomplish your will in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know we recently took a trip to Kenya. That's why I have been out the last 10 days or so. And on this trip to Kenya, we stayed at the Nourishing the Nations uh, property, stayed in the mission home. We met with the Nourishing the Nations staff and uh, got to visit them at all of the five churches that host feeding programs. We got to see the work that uh, the pastors and the staff were doing with the children in feeding the kids and doing Awana programs with the kids and sharing the gospel uh, with the kids and with their families. Uh, we got to host them and spend time with them there at the mission home in the chapel. And then Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday of that week, I stayed back while the team went out uh, and did ministry in the field, and I taught a group of about 30 pastors, church leaders, the Old Testament. That's an easy thing to do. You have two days to teach the entire Old Testament. It was a piece of cake. We breezed right through it, Genesis to Malachi, and uh, covered a lot of ground really, really fast. So we had a great week. And this trip to Kenya, I think it was my fifth or sixth trip to Kenya, it was like every other trip where I've traveled to Kenya, we encountered people there who were suffering. We encountered people who were sick. We encountered people who had recently lost loved ones. We encountered people there who were hungry. We encountered people there who were desperately looking for work. We encountered people there who were homeless and needed a place to live. We encountered people there who were lost, just lost, spiritually lost in their trespasses and sins. You encounter all sorts of suffering when you travel to a place like Western Kenya. And as we were there and we're encountering all of this suffering, I carried around with me a little black box made by a company called Apple. And this magical black box kept me apprised of all the goings-on completely on the other side of the world. And multiple times, every day that we were there, I would receive a voicemail or a text message or an email or a Facebook message from somebody in Odessa, Texas or about somebody in Odessa, Texas who was suffering on the other side of the world, encountering people who are suffering, and you're carrying around a little black box, 
and it keeps telling you every day, all day, this person had an accident. This person's having a family crisis. This person has just lost a loved one. This person went to the doctor and they got bad news. This person is having trouble finding work. This person is having conflict in their life with their family or with their friends. The same sorts of things that you're encountering on the other side of the world, you encounter right here in Odessa, Texas. And I'm struck constantly as a pastor when you encounter suffering everywhere that you go. I'm struck by the popularity of the prosperity gospel. It is literally everywhere you go in Kenya, and it is literally everywhere you go in the Bible Belt. I'm struck by how popular it is because if you open the Bible and read for five minutes, just five minutes in any direction, you'll come away saying, that can't be right. One of these two things can't be true. Either the prosperity gospel is wrong or the Bible itself is wrong. Just five minutes. I'm also struck by how popular the prosperity gospel is because it just doesn't ring true to life. I'm just not buying the lie that if there's suffering in my life or your life, it's that we have a lack of faith. That you just use this spiritual sleight of hand and push it all back on people and load them up with guilt and say, well, you wouldn't be experiencing all of these terrible things if you just had a little more faith. I don't want to say that to somebody who's hungry in Kenya, and I don't want to say that to somebody who's suffering here in Odessa, Texas. And the book of 1 Peter and the book of 2 Peter is a reality check when it comes to the reality of suffering and why God allows this sort of suffering in our lives. And so all I want to do tonight with you is walk through these verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. And I want you to think with me about what Peter is calling us to do and what Peter wants us to remember as we deal with suffering in our lives. So number one, Peter calls on believers who are suffering to do two things calls us to do two things in this passage. Here's the first thing Peter calls us to do. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing that at the right time, God will exalt His people. That's the first thing he calls us to do. You should humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And as you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you should know and remember that at the right time, God will exalt His people. So this is what he says in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Let me just walk you through those two verses. Let's talk about humility. Humility in the Bible means that you don't think about yourself as the center of everything. 
It doesn't necessarily mean that you think you're a terrible, worthless, horrible, no good, very bad person. Although the Bible says all of those things are true of you. But humility in the Bible means you just don't think about yourself a lot, period. You don't insert yourself into the middle of everything. You don't walk down the hall at church or at work and assume that every whisper is about you. You don't assume that everyone is always obsessing with you or thinking about you or out to get you. You don't put yourself at the center of everything. I've had to say this to a couple of people recently. People who came to me, different situations, and they essentially said, look, I have this thing going on in my life. A lot of people know about it. I'm kind of embarrassed by it. I feel terrible. It's just an unfortunate thing. And I'm afraid if I walk into church, everyone's going to just look at me and they're going to know and they're going to think about it and it's just, it's going to be bad. And you know what I told these people? I told someone this after lunch today. I said, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Everyone's not thinking about you. Everyone's thinking about themselves and their stuff and their lives and what they have to do tomorrow and their stresses and they don't feel good and their kids. They're not thinking about you, I promise you. They're not thinking about you. But that's what we do, right? We tend to put ourselves into the center of everything. Now let me just confess, it's not just people that I've had to give this advice to, it's myself that I've had to give this advice to recently. In Kenya, day one, we took a lunch break from studying the Old Testament. We went from the chapel to the back of the property to the gazebo. They had lunch prepared. They were not expecting an American to come to lunch. So they had no silverware. You were to eat with your hands. And I thought, they can do it, I can do it. They served soup. Okay, I can do it. So I got the soup and I got the ugali and I looked at how they did it and I tried to do it myself and I sat there with about 30 men. And for most of the lunch, out on that gazebo, there was raucous laughter. And I sat there staring at my bowl thinking, these guys are laughing at me. They think I am a clown. They think I'm a helpless American that can't eat unless you give him a spoon and I probably need a bib. And they just think I'm, they're not going to listen to me talk about the Old Testament. They don't even think I know how to eat food. And I'm just thinking, they're laughing at me. They're, they're talking about me. And it was loud and it was boisterous and they were laughing and joking all in a language, not English, you understand? So I didn't understand any of it. I just knew there's a lot of laughing going on, and I seem to be the odd guy out. And I put myself at the center of that. And about halfway through the lunch, I finally leaned over and I said, what, what is so funny? And he said, oh, oh, sorry. You see that pastor over there? Yeah. Well, he just got diagnosed with diabetes, and he can't eat this food. So we're making fun of him. That's what guys do when guys get together. They find the weakest link and they make fun of them. They weren't laughing about me. No one was thinking about me. But I spent 20 minutes thinking, oh, they're laughing at me. They're making fun of me. They're teasing. Oh, they're giving it to me. 
They were making fun of the guy with diabetes. That's what we do. We put ourselves at the center of things. That's what you do when you drive down 42nd Street and somebody cuts out in front of you and you say, how dare you do that to me? They're not thinking about you. Period. It's not about you. It's not about me. Humility. Humble yourselves. Stop putting yourselves at the center of everything. Do you understand that when you suffer, we're talking about suffering, when you suffer, you will face the temptation to focus on yourself. It's inevitable. Peter knows this. And Peter is saying, you need to humble yourself. You need to stop putting yourself at the center of the universe. It's not where you belong. Stop thinking about yourself all of the time. Humble yourselves. Annie says, humble yourselves where? Under the mighty hand of God. When you suffer, you will be tempted, number one, to think and focus on yourself. And number two, you will be tempted to think that God is not in control of what's happening to you. That the universe has spun out of control. That God must not be on the throne because if He were, these things surely wouldn't be happening to you. God would not allow these things to happen to you. But Peter says, when you suffer, you need to humble yourself. You need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. How do you do that? Maybe you turn to a verse like Psalm 24, verse 1. And you just remind yourself that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything belongs to Him. It doesn't belong to me. And He's in control of all of it. Maybe you just stop to sing a verse or two or three of the children's song. He's got the whole world in His hands. When you suffer, you start to question that. You stop thinking about God, period, and you start to think that if God's there, He's not in control. You just remind yourself, He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got all of it in His hands. He's got all of it in control. His mighty hand is not too short that He's lost control of my life or my circumstance. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What does he say in verse 6? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. When we travel to Kenya, our pastor friends will say to us multiple times as we have conversation, God's time is the best time. God's time is the best time. Do you believe that? I mean, you're here on a Wednesday night. You're supposed to nod your head yes. I believe that. But I'm just, I'm not asking you to nod your head. I'm asking you if you really believe that. And I'm not asking for an out loud answer. I'm asking you, do you really believe that God's time is the best time? Peter says, you should humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, at the right time, He may exalt you. If he's not put an end to your suffering, yet, it's not the time. 
we'd like to think we know now would be a good time. I've learned my lesson. I've had enough. I'd like to move on to something else. God's time is the best time. At the proper time, He may exalt you. Peter says that instead of advising God about His timing, no one's called to advise God, you are to cast all your anxieties on Him. Do you believe that God's time is the best time? You believe that at the proper time He will exalt you and He'll bring an end to your suffering. That doesn't mean you have to grin and bear it. Grin and bear it is the advice of a stoic. It's not the advice of a Christian. It's not Peter's advice. He doesn't say grin and bear it. He calls you to be a person of faith who believes that at the right time God will exalt you. At the proper time He will end your suffering and He will exalt His people. In the meantime... Take all your anxieties and cast them on the Lord. Why should you do this? Because He cares for you. When you suffer, that won't seem true. It will seem distant. It will seem hollow. It will seem not real. But it's real. And it's not far off. It's close. It's true. It's eternally true. God cares for his people. So you should cast all of your anxieties on him. Now here's the reality. When you're suffering, sometimes you don't even know how to do that. Sometimes you find yourself saying, God, so what do you do? I think one of the, th- one of the things you could do is you could turn to the book of Psalms. And you could read a psalm like Psalm 73, a psalm of lament. There's more psalms of lament than any other kind of psalm. A psalm of lament is basically a complaint with faith. It's casting your anxiety on God and believing that He cares for you and that His time is the best time. That's what a lament is. God, I'm going to tell you what I think about this. And I'm going to remind myself that you care for me. And I'm going to affirm the fact that your time is the best time. That's a lament. Psalm 73 is a lament. You could read a passage like Psalm 23. You could read a passage like the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes if you don't know what to pray, take a prayer in the Bible and make that your prayer. You cast your anxieties on the Lord. So Peter says, in the midst of your suffering, do two things. Number one. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, knowing that at the proper time, He will exalt you. Here's the second thing He calls us to do. Be sober-minded and watchful, knowing that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. Be sober-minded and watchful. When we read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he said, you need to prepare your mind for action and you need to be sober-minded. Now he's circling back to that idea in chapter 5, and in verse 8 he says, be sober-minded, think clearly, don't have confused, clouded thinking, but think rightly. It's hard to think rightly when you suffer. It's really hard. 
it's really easy to think poorly and to think inaccurately. But Peter says you've got to be sober-minded. This takes a, an act of intentionality. It's what Paul calls the church in Rome to in Romans 12.2 where he says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have got to think rightly about life and death and suffering and God in eternity. Be sober-minded and be watchful. What are we to watch for? Peter says you need to be watchful because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. Your enemy does not fight fair. He will likely not attack you on your best day. He will likely attack you on your worst day. He'll kick you when you're down. He'll kick dirt in your eye when you can't even catch your breath. He doesn't fight fair. Think about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, 40 nights fasting. The Bible says he was hungry. And then we read the accounts of his temptation. Not in his best, strongest moment, but in his weakest, most solitary moment. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. It's why Paul in Ephesians 6 says you need to put on the whole armor of God. You need to put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. So that you can stand in the evil day. So that you can stand against the attacks of the enemy. That call to stand is echoed in verse 9 when Peter, not Paul, but Peter says, resist him. Stand against him. Resist him. And look what Peter says. This is a fascinating verse. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Why does Peter say that? I've thought about that little phrase a lot this week. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that Christians all over the world are experiencing exactly what you're experiencing. Is that Peter being calloused and saying, just put your big boy pants on. Everybody goes through hard times. Come on, let's go. Chop, chop. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. I think that's the kind of thing Peter might say back in the Gospels. But I don't think it fits with the Peter that we hear from throughout 1 Peter and 2 Peter. I think Peter... 30 years after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus has learned something important about suffering firsthand and from the people that he's pastored and he's walked with in life. And I think what he's learned is this. When you suffer, when I suffer, 
we are tempted to think that something unusual or strange is happening to us. Something out of the ordinary. Peter's not trying to be calloused, and he's not just trying to tell you to toughen up. But Peter is saying this is to be expected. This is what all of God's people can expect. All of your brothers throughout the world, in Kenya and in Odessa. You have an adversary, the devil. He prowls around. He's seeking people to devour. You must stand against him. You must resist him. Now, none of this is very cheery, is it? We sang Christmas songs and you were just working up some holiday cheer even before Thanksgiving. You were starting to feel so jolly. And then this is the passage that we look at. And it just doesn't feel very cheery. I would just say to you, you live in the United States of America. You have cheery on every corner, every day of the year. Everywhere you look, there's cheery, light, fluffy, frivolous, silly, just empty stuff everywhere. It's Hallmark movies. I hope you enjoy your Hallmark movies. It's just light, silly. It's nothing. You know, it's a strange thing that Americans love true crime podcasts. We love Hallmark movies and true crime podcasts. Like the top 1,000 podcasts in the world are all true crime podcasts. They tell the most horrific things you've ever heard in your life. Why do we like that? Do you know why I think we like it? It's because it's real. Hallmark movies aren't real. We like the distraction, that's great, but at some point we want something real. Something real. Peter's giving you something real here. It's real. You're going to suffer. You need to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because at the right time He'll exalt you. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be watchful because your adversary, the devil, wants to destroy you. That's what you need to do. Here's what you need to remember. Four truths. Truth number one. Our suffering will only last a short time. That's what he says in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. When you suffer, it doesn't feel like a little while, does it? It's easy to tell someone else, hey, this is only going to last a little while. When it's you, it doesn't feel like a little while. When you get on the plane to come home from Kenya and you're tired and the little thing on the screen says you're going to sit in this chair and look at this screen for the next nine hours and you try to take a nap and you wake up and you think, surely it's been seven and a half hours. And the screen says, nope, it's been 20 minutes. You think I'm never getting off this plane. It's never going to end. But it's only a little while. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's a little while. But in the moment, it feels endless. Suffering is that way. Peter says you're going to suffer for a little while. Look what Paul says in Romans 8, just to compare some passages. 
He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. And then he adds this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light momentary affliction. In that same book, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we were crushed beyond the point that we could handle it, and we despaired of life itself, suffering. But now he's got some eternal perspective, and he says it's light and it's momentary. It's just a little while. It's a little while. The sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory. Now, your friends and your family who suffer or who are suffering, they don't need you in a sanctimonious way to read these verses to them. But guess what? They need those verses. They don't need your trivial trying to minimize, trying to just explain it all away. They don't need you to be Job's buddies. But they do need the living, abiding, eternal, powerful Word of God. Because they need perspective on what they're going through. Not just a small, focused perspective, but an eternal perspective. Our suffering will only last a short time. Truth number two, the God of all grace has called us to Himself. He's called us. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. That word, He's called you, in this passage is talking about God's effectual call. This is the call of God that went forth in the beginning when the Word of God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the call of God issued from Jesus of Nazareth when He stood outside of Lazarus' tomb and He said, Lazarus, come out, and He came out. It's the call of God described in 1 Peter verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, God by His great mercy has caused us to be born again. He calls what is dead to life. It's the same call of God described in John chapter 6 where Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless they're called. And all of those who are called are going to come. When God issues this call, it happens. Light appears. Dead men walk out of the tomb. Spiritually dead people come to life. People who have no interest in Jesus come to Jesus. God has called you, Christian, to Himself. And your suffering will not uncall you. And you got to remember that. In your suffering, that the God of all grace has called you, effectually, powerfully, sovereignly called you to Himself. And your suffering is not just going to make that void. So you remember, our suffering will only last a short time. The God of grace has called us to Himself. Number three, God will be faithful to save His people in the end. He will, verse 10, He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will do these things. 
He will do them. Jake talked about 1 Peter 1, 4-5 Sunday. We have an inheritance that is being kept in heaven. God is keeping it for you. And He will give it to you in His time, which is the best time, the proper time. He will be faithful to give you that inheritance. Philippians 1, the God who begins a work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Exodus 32, I walked through it with the guys in Kenya this week. Why did God not simply destroy the people when they worshipped the idol that they built after He brought them out of Egypt? It's because when Moses prayed to Him, Moses said, you've already said you're going to save them, God. They're your people. You saved them. God's faithful to His promises even when His people aren't faithful. The God of grace has called us to Himself and He will be faithful to save His people in the end. Last Verse 11, God will receive the glory for the salvation of His people. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the sovereignty of God, our salvation is tied to God receiving glory. And God is committed to His own glory. It's wrong for you and I, creatures, to be committed to our glory, but it's eternally and forever right for God to be committed to His glory. God will get the glory in the end. And in the providence of God, in the plan of God, in the purposes of God, He has tied His glory to our salvation. Those two things are connected. The salvation of His people and the glory of His name. And we're reminded in this passage that even in the midst of suffering, God will be faithful to His people. He's called them to Himself. He will finish what He started. Why? Because we deserve it? Because He intends to get the glory in the end. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we're thankful for the Bible saying things to us that are true and real. And Lord, we understand that suffering is a reality in this world. Lord, I think about the people in this church family, and I think about the things that they've dealt with in the last couple of weeks. I think about our friends in Kenya and the things that they've dealt with and are dealing with now. Father, we're just, we're painfully aware that we live in a fallen, broken world and that suffering is part of our lot in this life. And we thank you not for a magic formula to escape all of this suffering or to hope to escape it, but we thank you for truth in the midst of suffering. We thank you for the call to action and we thank you for the call to remember. Ultimately, we thank you that you have yourself entered into the suffering of this world and you've sent your son to suffer for us so that in your time, in the proper time, you might exalt us. We marvel at your grace and we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for the hope that we have even in the midst of suffering. Father, we pray that your word would be like a, a steel rod in our spine to strengthen us and to fortify us and to sustain us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.